So five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen with his mom as she was making supper, and he was, you know, being a good helper, trying to help his mother out, and she asked him to go to the pantry and get her a can of tomato soup. But he didn't want to go in there because it's dark. and said, Mom, I'm scared of the dark. I don't, I don't want to go in there. And she again asked, and he still responded, No, Mom, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. And, you know, finally, kind of a little bit in exasperation, but also being a good Christian mom, trying to, you know, teach your son about the Lord, said, you know, Johnny, it's okay. You can go in there. Jesus will be with you. And Johnny kind of was hesitant, a little scared, and kind of went up and opened up the door and peered in, but it was still really dark. And, and finally kind of an idea came to his mind, and he said, Jesus, if you're in there, can you pass me the tomato soup? <laughs> we all find ourselves like little Johnny sometimes, don't we? Where we're overcome and maybe even paralyzed by fear. And even if someone gives us Christian platitudes or tells us it's okay, Jesus is with you, we still aren't quite sure that we believe it or that that means we really want to take a step into that dark place. And so as Christians, what can we do? How can we overcome our fear? Or what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in the midst of fear? What we're going to find this morning is we're continuing our series um, called Flawed Heroes, looking through the book of Judges. We are going to look at a judge who found himself overcome with fear continually in the person of Gideon. We're going to look at Gideon this week and next week. His story is long. It takes up a couple chapters. And this morning, we're just going to do all of chapter 6 and most of chapter 7 kind of up to the end. And we're going to try and look at Gideon's fear and see what does that have to teach us. And really, this morning, we'll look at three things. First, we're going to look at Gideon's fear. Then we're going to look at God's actions. And finally, we'll look at our response or our obedience or, okay, what do we do? So if you would, just go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Um, we're going to read all of chapter 6 and most of chapter 7, um, which is our habit. And just as a reminder for those of you who may be new or find yourself wondering why in the world do we do that? Well, part of the reason is because this is God's Word. And I think reading God's Word is really the most important thing that we do every week. And it's definitely probably the most important part of my sermon. And so all that I should do is just explaining what it is that we read. And that makes less sense if we don't Read it first so you can see if anything I'm saying actually matches what we're doing. So if you're able to, stand with us um, as we just read through God's Word, starting in Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. And they would encamp them and they would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come up like locusts in number. For both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the weakest in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come with you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into the house, prepared a young goat and eleven cakes from a path of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and pour them over this rock and pour out the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meats and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abezerites. And that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, then the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has set up, and cut down the Asherah that is next to it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. And take a second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah you have cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And then the men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull on the offered, offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore that day Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abezerites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun and to Naphtali and they went up to meet them. And Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and the dry on the, all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. 
Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and all on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry in the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped in the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north by them, by the valley of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And if any of them whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Anyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, anyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took revisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he said, all of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And the same night the Lord against him said, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down with your camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Purah, his servant, and the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay in the valley like locusts and abundance. And their camels were without number, as sand is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling his dream to a comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came into the tent, and it struck it, so it felt and turned, fell and turned upside down, so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all his camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of his dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars and torches in the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held their left hands in the torches and their right hands in the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. And they cried out and fled. For when they blew the trump, 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta to Zerah as far as the border of Abel-Mahoah by Tabath. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would change us, open our eyes, allow us to see what your word has to say to us this morning. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that fear 
limits our obedience. Fear limits our obedience. And the theme of this passage really centers around fear. And we're set up to believe this really from the introduction, how you see this when the prophet comes, or the people right away in verse 1 of chapter 6, people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord again. And God gives them over to the hand of Midian. And then in verse 6, they cry out to God for help again, and God answers. But he answers first, not by sending a judge. First, he sends a prophet. A prophet who is trying to call them to repentance. And the prophet warns them in 10. First, he reminds them of everything God has done. He's delivered them from Egypt. And he says, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. It begins by reminding them of who they should fear. Not the nations, not the gods, not all their mights. But they should listen and obey. But instead, they have chosen to fear. They've been afraid of the other nations. And that fear has limited their obedience. As their obedience has limited their worship, they've started worshiping the wrong gods. And this sets it up to introduce us to Gideon, who we then meet as someone who is afraid. And you see over and over throughout these passages how his fear holds him back, how he's constantly questioning and doubting and wondering if God really has spoken. When we're introduced to him in verse 11, he's hiding. Right? He's the son of Gideon, and in 11 is beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Thus, it seems reasonable. Well, of course, anytime you're not hiding, the Midianites come and they take it from you. So he's hiding where you would be making wine, and that's where he's dealing with his wheat. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, which is a strange greeting. It almost seems like he's making fun of him or mocking him. I don't think that's what he's doing because he's acting very scared. He's not acting at all like a mighty man of valor. But instead, what I think is going on is this is prophetic. This is God trying to tell Gideon, trying to call him into becoming something. Not a person ruled by fear, but a person ruled by faith who becomes a mighty man. He's saying, Gideon, I can take you and turn you from this terrified, scared man into a mighty man of valor. This is what you can be if you obey. And don't let your fear hold you back. But Gideon shrugs off this welcome and he starts interrogating the angel of the Lord. He doesn't listen. He doesn't fall on his face and try and worship. Instead, what he does is he starts saying, well, you know, please, my Lord, if, it's a big if, you can kind of circle that, if the Lord is with us, he said, I don't believe you, what you're saying, I, I doubt it, then why has all this happened to us? Well, we should know, we just read in verses 8 through 10, the prophet just explained exactly why this has happened to them. It seems like, well, either Gideon didn't hear it, but I think he heard it, but he, like now, didn't believe it. He isn't listening. Here's the angel of the Lord coming and telling him he's going to bring the deliverance that they've asked for, and Gideon's not really sure that this is an angel. Maybe someone's just playing a prank on me. And so he rejects the call, and he says, you know, hey, even if this is true, even after God affirms it, verse 14, go in this might, I'm going to save you, don't I send you? He says, well, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest. I'm the least in my father's house. It's like, I am the most unqualified. I'm not, none of my brothers want to follow me. No one is really impressed with how awesome I am. Like, couldn't you go to another tribe? There's about 50 more people I could tell you that would love to do this. They'd be really excited. Maybe they've even been asking for it. Uh, please, not me. He's so afraid of his own lack of power that he still doesn't want to trust in the power of God. And he lets it hold him back. And it goes through this thing, right, where Gideon is, tells him, you know, wait. And you notice too in 17, he says, well, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. 
Even at this point, Gideon isn't really sure it's God. He says, well, let me test you. Let's need you to prove it to me. Again, this is one of the first of many signs that Gideon will ask. And so he goes to his house and, you know, he prepares the goat and the cake and the flour and the broth and he does all of this. All of this is uh, something, it's an offering you're supposed to give to God. And the fire comes and it proves, well, it is God. So Gideon does this to, he really wants God to prove it. And so God does it. God is gracious to Gideon, even with all of his fear and his lack of faith. And he tells him, I'll stay here. And he does all of it in 21 and the fire springs up. And then finally, Gideon goes in 22, alas, it is the Lord God. Duh, it's been God since before. And he says, now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Even that now makes it seem like he wasn't really sure that was that before. And so it's not until that moment that he believes. But if you think at this moment that Gideon's fear has been conquered, I'm sorry, it's a long way to go. He continues to let his fear hold him back from being obedient. Now he obeys and the angel, the Lord tells him, hey, there's altars, there's idols set up in your house. Go get rid of them. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to repent, turn from your gods, come follow me and then I'll save you. So step one, get rid of your idols. And so Gideon does obey, he does it, but look at 27, Gideon takes 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord has told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he obeys, but his fear still holds him back. He does it at night, he doesn't want a confrontation, he doesn't want anyone to even know it was him. He's too scared. He doesn't want to have to have a conversation. What are you doing, Gideon? Oh, well, these are idols. We're not supposed to worship them. We're supposed to worship God. He's like, oh, that could go. I don't know how that's going to go. We'll just take this down at night instead. And his fear holds him back. It keeps him from obeying God in a way that's going to call his father and his family and the nation to repentance. And even when he's discovered, it's interesting, he doesn't speak up in his defense. He doesn't speak at all. His dad, who's probably the one who built this, because it's his house, he's in charge of it. His dad is the one who speaks up for him and defends him. And says, well, you contend for Baal or will you save him? Say, hey, if Baal's really a god, he can take care of this. He can take out Gideon. But if not, let's leave him alone and see what will happen. That sounds like something a prophet should say. Sounds like something a judge should say. Instead, Gideon's dad says it because Gideon is nowhere to be found even in this confrontation. We don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's still hiding and but it's clear, God still delivers him. Even with all of this, God saves him and keeps him safe. But Gideon had nothing to do with it. And then again, he still asks God for more signs. He goes, he gathers up the nation, so that now he's got about 32,000 people following him. And still God says, in, or Gideon says in 36, Well, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, as you've said... Notice how qualifying Gideon still is. Well, you know, God, if you're really going to do the stuff that you said you were going to do, I, I guess, I've got another test for you. I'm going to go into the, the threshing floor, the place where I was hiding before. I'm going to put down this wool, my fleece, and I want there to be a lot of dew on it, but the ground to be dry. And you go, okay, well, sure, we can do that. And God does it. And it was so, Exactly. And God does it in abundantly. It's not just a little dew. He can fill up a whole bowl with water. That's not just the Bible giving us details we don't know. That's trying to say God more than met this sign for Gideon. 
God gave him plenty of dudes thinking, here you go. Now you shouldn't doubt at all. But yet Gideon goes, you know, maybe that was a bad idea. Let me, let me switch this around. Let's try this again, God. Oh, please, you know, just once more, just once more, let me test you. Which is also not true because he's going to do it again later. So he does it again and then still 40, God does so. God answers him. But even in this, we don't hear how, and this strengthened Gideon's faith, and then he was awesome, and then he obeyed and did exactly what God wanted. It seems like he was still pretty scared. It still held him back, even after gathering the army. And so later, as you see in 7, I'm going to skip ahead, we'll, we'll go back, but God tells him that night in 7 9, he says, Arise and go down into the camp, for I've given it to your hand. He's saying, Okay, obedience time, here we go. Take up the army and go kill them. He says, but if you're too scared to go do that yet, why don't you go down there and take into the camp, take your servant, and after you hear what people say, then you're going to know for sure again that I've done and am going to do everything I've told you the last 17 times that, yes, this is what I'm going to do, Gideon. And so Gideon, notice again, he doesn't obey immediately. He just, yeah, well, yeah, I am scared, so let me go see what this is. I think I need another sign, God. And he goes down and he hears a dream interpreted. And the guy, the 13, tells him, you know, tells him his dream, seeing a cake and it tumbles down and it flips a tent over and that's, you know, Midian. And if that was me, if somebody told me about that dream, I'd go, okay, man, seems like a weird dream. Cool, I guess. But that's not what his friend says. His friend in verse 14 says, oh, I know how to interpret that dream. That's the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God's given him into the hand of Midian and all the camp. How in the world would this dude get that? This guy knows Gideon, has heard of him. Probably not. If Gideon's the least in his house and the least Calian and he's done almost nothing other than be scared and terrified this whole time. And yet when Gideon wanders down into this camp that is filled with more people than can be counted as it tells us over and over. Gideon happens to wander the tent where this happens and this person happens to say exactly what Gideon needs to hear. Only God could do it. There should be no doubt in Gideon's mind that this is from God. There shouldn't have been before after all the other miracles God did. But he does another one just to make it about as clear as you can. You can almost just see God saying, okay, dummy, are you good? Do you get it? I don't know how to make this much more clear for you, Gideon. But he does. And after that, Gideon finally, he stands and he worships and then he goes and obeys. After all of that. But our fear so often holds us back from obedience, doesn't it? Our fear keeps us from talking about Jesus and from sharing the gospel with others because, well, we're scared of how they might react. Oh, maybe they'll think I'm weird. Maybe they won't like it. I know they don't actually like Jesus. They told me they don't go to church, so I, I don't want to press. I don't want to, I don't know how this will go. And so we're afraid. And so we don't. Or we can see our fellow believers doing something sinful. We'd see our fellow believers saying something that they shouldn't say or gossiping or doing something else. And we can think, ah, you know, I don't think Christians should do that. Should I say something? Should I remind them of what God's word says? No, I, you know, maybe that they might get mad at me, might get upset. I don't know if I want to speak out, you know, for righteousness. We can act like that man in the parable of the talents who took his talent and he was too scared to do anything with it that he buried it into the ground and then just waited to see what would happen. His, that man's fear held him back from obedience and it cost him blessing. Our fear, too, so often keeps us from obeying God. 
our fear can keep us from when we hear God or we feel like the Holy Spirit is pressing us or t- inviting us to do something or telling us to go somewhere. Or maybe you should, you know, I think you should call them or say something. We can be too afraid that we're so afraid that we don't obey. And we like Gideon and we can just stay still and do nothing because rather than we don't want to take a step of faith and risk everything. Our fear primarily like Gideon causes us to doubt God's word. Over and over Gideon is held back because he's not sure that God has actually said what he said that he said. When he repeatedly says, well, God, if you really have said this, I'm not really sure. Can you do something to prove that this is your word? Our fear paralyzes us. Our fear can make us think that maybe God's a liar. Maybe all those promises that I've read about are true for other people, but they're not true for me. Our fear makes us doubt, and that seems to be one of the places that fear strikes first. It makes us wonder if God really is trustworthy, if we can hear His Word, if we can listen to it. And so that's Gideon's fear, but what about God's action? How does God respond when we're fearful? What does God do even when we're here? Well, point number two, if you're taking notes, is that often... God puts us in fearful situations to build our faith. But often God puts us in fearful situations in order to build our faith. This is how God works. We wish it wasn't like this. Right? If any of us got to pick or got to ask God, it would say, God, I'm pretty scared. Could you make this less scary so I can have more faith? That seems to be the obvious solution. And yet that is not often what God does. Instead, what God does is he cranks up the fear. He does this for Gideon. In fact, God actually, even after all of this patience, all this listening and, and being gracious to Gideon, he turns it up and makes it even more scary for Gideon. Gideon's been scared before the army's even gathered. But so in chapter 7, all of this thing with whittling down to the 300 men, God, in, God just goes through a long process of making Gideon's army smaller and smaller and smaller. And he tells him why right away. Before he starts shrinking, he tells him, I'm going to. And 7-2. Gideon, the people with you are too many. Too many. I'm sure Gideon looked around and thought, "Uh, no, Lord, I've counted. And I can't count how many of the Midianites have, but I can count how many we have. So I'm assuming not enough. I I would like more. But God says, nope, too many. It's too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Because lest Israelite boast over me and say, my own hand has saved me. God wants to shrink Gideon's army so that there is no doubt that this is a miracle. So Gideon won't be able to say, hey, I did this. I'm an awesome general. Look how brilliant I am. So Israel can't think, wow, it must have just worked out. So people couldn't look back later and say, well, of course Israel would have won that battle. Look at the terrain and the things. It was just brilliant tacticians. It's no, 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 no. Wow, I don't know how this happened. Only God could have done this. That's what God wants. And so right away, the first thing he says, which is funny where he starts in three, he says, now tell everybody, whoever is fearful and trembling, they can go home. Okay, so that's probably good. Usually we see that in movies, right? Before a big battle and someone says, all right, guys, if any of you are scared or want to leave, you can all leave now. And then it's really emotional and moving because nobody leaves or maybe the one coward leaves and we're like, yeah, see, they're all tough. Okay, this isn't like that. That speech comes and then everybody leaves and 10,000 stay. Two-thirds of them are gone. They say, really? We can out? Okay, see you later, guys. I'm gone. Gideon probably there too was wondering, well, anyone who's scared, Lord, that's me. I'm scared. I'm trembling. Um, do I get to go home? Because I'd rather not be here. This is not great. What are you doing? Why are you making this scarier? Gideon probably already thought, hey, 32,000, that's not enough, God. Why'd you, why'd you take all this away? 
but okay, you know, maybe, maybe this is good, this is fine, and yet God says again, no, nope. still too many. Still too many people. Take them down. Take them down there to find water. I'm going to test them again. I can't imagine how Gideon felt in that moment. Okay, because we find out later in chapter 8 that there's over 120,000 of these people in the Midianite army. And Gideon started with 32. That's already not enough. That's pretty terrible odds. You're going to lose that. Now again, now they're just down to 10,000. You're saying, well, that's much worse. And they had to count that. So I'm assuming Gideon's counting again. Okay, from the 32, well, now we're down to 10. That's not great, but okay. Nope, too many. Let's whittle this down some more. And so God does this, and he, and he tells them how to separate them. And it goes to this, this weird thing with how they're drinking water. And I think we can read too much into what exactly is going on there. I don't really know. I didn't find anything that seemed that good. The main purpose of it, again, that God tells us in 7-2, is just to get it so small so that Gideon can know only God could have done this. Only God could have delivered them. And so it gets all the way down to 300. You can just imagine how Gideon felt as he was walking down. Okay, now walk along and send that person over there, that person over there. As Gideon just kept saying, man, Lord, I'm sending a lot of people over to this side and there is not many over there. Please tell me, like, the small number, those are the people who are going home. He says, nope, 300? Perfect. That's it. That's what we need, Gideon. I got it. How scared he must have been. I would have been. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you look at it over and over, it tells us that they're, the Midianites are greater than locusts. They can't be numbered. They're like this, more than sands of the seashore, kind of echoing the promise of Abraham. It sounds a little familiar. And yet here, well, Lord, I can't count them, but I can count these 300. I, I can stand still and I have to raise my voice too loud and they can all hear me. So I'm not sure how this is going to go. But this is what God does. God intentionally made the situation more dire, more scary to build their faith. To give them a chance to say, okay, only God could do this. There is no way we can beat them with just this. It doesn't even say that they have any swords. He wants, doesn't want Gideon or Israel or anyone to think that someone did this other than God. And he does it in a miraculous way. All right? They take torches and trumpets. That's what it tells us they take. It doesn't tell us they took weapons. It doesn't say they took really good chariots. They didn't get really long spears and do something or great shields like 300 movie. They just take some music and some light. That's what they have to go and fight. And yet 722, when they blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled. They blow their trumpets and they smash their pots and the lights come out and God kills them all by himself. He makes the army turn against itself and fight each other. And then it runs away, presumably while they're just standing up there, just blowing their trumpets, watching. Really not doing anything. God's doing all of it. Now you think then, wow, you can't take any credit for that. There's no way you can deny that only God did that. He made that situation so bad and so worse that no one should have been able to look back and say, well, granddad, weren't you with Gideon? Weren't you one of the 300? And they could say, oh, you know, no one could tell their grandkids how awesome they were that day. Say, oh yeah, I killed at least 20,000 just by myself. I was, you know, I was really doing great, son. You know, just be, oh yeah, I was there. I, you know, stood up right over there on the hill and I blew my trumpet and just kind of stood there for a few hours and then I went home. That was it. We were done. That was, that was all I did. You know, the guy next to me, he was really off-key, but my note was just <laughs> perfect. 
I mean, I, I don't know. And that over there, they kind of kept having to take a lot of breaks, but I was really playing that trumpet good. That's about all you could take credit for in this. Only God could do it. And this is what God does for us as well. There are so many times that God allows situations in our own lives to deteriorate. He lets us do things on our own and see how that goes to see if we're going to ask him for help or not. And often I think we can all admit that it's only really when we find ourselves in really scary, really fearful situations or we don't have anywhere else to go that then all of a sudden we start looking to God for help. That's when we start asking other people to pray for us. So if we're, ah, well, I can take care of this. I don't need to ask anybody to pray for me. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. It's only when we've run flat into a wall that suddenly we start to think, ah, maybe I need God's help today, often. But we find ourselves often is that our faith really grows when we're in need. Uh, that faith is much like a muscle and that you have to work it out to get it stronger. You don't get much stronger if you're just lifting really small weights that don't hurt you very much or really easy. I don't know, you can tell I'm not a really big bodybuilding expert, but I know I'm more sore and I seem to get a little stronger if I'm lifting heavier weights that are heavy and hurt and I don't really like lifting them. I'd rather just lift the little one pound weights, but those don't build your muscles as much. And just like with faith, you have to be in a fearful situation. You got to be in a moment when faith is hard, when it costs you. When it's difficult to believe, when it's difficult to hold on to Jesus, those are the moments when your faith really can grow. When you know only God can save me. But something really strange happens to Gideon in the midst of this. And this thing happens to us as well. So look at what Gideon commands the troops, kind of in 718. So, so after this, you know, he's, after God comes to him, before they go down, he says, Okay, guys, when I blow the trumpet, everyone who's with me, blow the trumpets and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Then again in 20, he does it and they cry out for the Lord and for Gideon. See that? What a change. For Gideon. It's interesting that he tells them to do that. I don't think God told him to put that there. That sounds like something Gideon wanted. And that's really just a hint of what is to come. What we'll see is the story of Gideon is actually a tragedy, much like King Saul in 1 Samuel. We'll see next week, we'll see how his fear turns into arrogant pride and he becomes power hungry. But he begins here. We see Gideon already starting to take credit for God's miracle. Even before God delivers it, he's starting to take the glory for himself. The irony is that the coward who has been, have to be dragged by God towards obedience over and over and over and over again, starts to now say, woohoo, for Gideon! We did it! You know, instead of just trusting and being faithful and humble, now he starts to become arrogant. But we do the same thing, don't we? We are very quick to forget all that God has done on our behalf right after we are delivered. There are miracles, I'm sure, that everyone in this room, we could spend a long time talking and sharing stories of how you have seen God show up in a place where you were desperate for Him to show up. And if He didn't show up, you were really going to be in trouble. But then how long did it take after that to forget that He had just done that? When the next situation comes, the next problem, all of a sudden... You forgot. It was really exciting in the moment. You couldn't wait to tell everyone and share and make a phone call. But a couple days go by and we forget those miracles. 
And the more we forget those miracles, suddenly something starts to shift and then we start to think that we did it. Maybe it wasn't really God. Maybe I made this happen. You know, the miracle of getting your own home that you were praying for and it finally happened and they accepted your offer, that fades quickly as the years come and things start breaking and then the tax bill comes once a year, then suddenly you're not as excited about the miracle anymore. We start to think that we've done it all on our own and we start to act like Gideon and we put our own names next to God. We're tempted to start taking credit for what God has done. There's an old story about a, a farmer in Indiana who took a, a piece of land down nearby a creek and had never been cleared. So it had a bunch of rocks and trees and kind of forest everywhere. But so he got it and he went to work. And he cleared out the brush and he hauled the rocks off and he cut down all the trees and he fertilized and he cultivated and he planted and he put his crops there. And finally, you know, it really had grown and it turned out to be this wonderful, beautiful crops were going and it was awesome. So he was really proud one Sunday and asked his, the preacher to come by after the service and look at his land and kind of see what he had done. And, the, you know, the preacher came out and looked and he was really impressed. He said, wow, that's the tallest corn I've ever seen. You know, praise God. He's really blessed this land. And, oh man, look at those melons. I've never seen anything like that. Praise God that he did that. And he went on and on, kind of every crop, just praising God for how awesome they looked. And eventually, you know, the tomatoes, the squash, the beans, praising the Lord for everything that had happened on the land. And the old farmer was starting to get, you know, a little upset, a little edgy, and finally couldn't take it anymore and said, you know, preacher, I really wish you could have seen this place when God was doing this all by himself. <laughs> because once I showed up, then all of a sudden, you know, now this is really, this has been working. But that's what we do, isn't it? That's our, we're tempted and that's why I think there are times that God allows our circumstances to become difficult. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. That he uses it at times to get our attention because we forget. If he doesn't put obstacles in our path, if he lets our army be too big, then suddenly we start to think that we have done something not that God has. There are times that he reduces it, he shrinks the crowd. Jesus often pushed the massive crowd of people following him away and would make them upset and shrink it. God intentionally will put us in places where we can do nothing but pray and ask for help because too often without fear we try and do it on our own. And the interesting thing with fear is it can limit our obedience, it can hold us back, but it can also build our faith if we lean into it. Because without fear there are many times we're not driven to faith. So point number three, if you're taking notes, it's kind of our response, what do we do? Well, we need to hold on to faith in the midst of fear. We just need to hold on to faith in the midst of our fear. We are all going to find ourselves in situations where we're afraid. And in the midst of that fear and that tension and the feeling in your gut and your heart, we have a choice. What are we going to do? Will we let our fear hold us back from obedience? Will we not do what God has asked us to do? Or will we hold on to faith? Will we obey anyway? Again, I'm not saying don't be afraid. So the opposite, I don't think the opposite of fear is fearlessness. I don't think that's true. I think the spiritual thing isn't to just then never be afraid. I think really the spiritual and godly response is in the midst of fear to have faith anyway. Right? It's like I've heard it said many times, you can really only be brave when you're afraid. Otherwise, it's not bravery. You're just doing something you know you should do. Well, there's a sense in which that's true of faith too where it really becomes faith when we're scared, when it's not easy, when it's not obvious, at least in some sense. And think of, 
Uh, one time, particularly, there were many when I was really afraid to obey God. I, I've shared this story before, but we were interning at a church, and it was kind of a, an unhealthy environment, and my year was coming up, and so I was trying to decide, well, what do we do? And I heard fairly clearly from God what I was supposed to do, leave. And Bree heard clearly from God and then told me, hey, no, we, we need to leave. But my fear made me really doubt, well, it seems really obvious that God says that, but you know, I don't know if God's considered the implications of what will happen if I do this. Because if I leave, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I don't know where, what job I'm going to get. I don't know if I'll be able to work in church again. Because if I just stay, you know, I can see the path. Here it is. You know, stay, put in a couple of years. This is a big church. You know, they've got good references. It'll work. And then I'll end up somewhere. But if I don't, none of these references are going to pan out. And then I'm going to be the person who left the church. And then I was working somewhere, not in a church. And well, God, wh what are you going to do? But all I kept hearing from God for weeks and weeks, I just wrestled with God. And every time I just hear him saying, well, are you going to trust me? Do you trust me or do you trust in your resume? Do you trust me or you trust in this? What, what are you going to do? And so even though I had no idea what was going to come next, and I was really afraid, I chose to just, well, God, I'm just going to hold on to you even though I am terrified. Just held on to faith and took a step, having no idea if God was going to catch me or not. But choosing to trust Him anyway. Even years later when I graduated seminary and was still looking and trying to see, well, God, where are you going to send me? I just had to hold on to faith. There are times that our fear will stay with us and sometimes it won't. But even when the fear is there, we have a choice. What are we going to do? What we need to do is just hold on to God. Hold on to His promises. You may find yourself like that, but our fear doesn't have to hold us. We can hold on to it like an anchor in the midst of a storm. We don't have to be slaves to fear. Let it dictate everything that we do. It can still be present, and then we say, you know what? I'm going to hold on to Jesus anyway. I'm going to trust in His promises. We can choose to trust God and His Word, like Gideon's primary temptation, and mine and ours often, is to doubt that God's Word really is true. Is to wonder even if we won't say it aloud, to believe the promises He's made to us are void. Fear makes us doubt. What we need to do is refuse to be ruled by our doubts. Instead, we run to God's Word. We run to Him and we hold on to Him and say, Lord, i got nowhere else to go. I'm just going to hold on to You and trust that You'll do everything that You've always said that You will. Practically, maybe for you, it might just look like saying, God, I'm scared, but I trust You. Every time you're afraid to obey, you're afraid, you doubt. Every time you fear fear rising up inside of you, you can say, God, I'm afraid. But I'm choosing to trust you anyway. And hold on to him. So this morning we've looked at fear. We've seen that our fear can limit our obedience. It can keep us from obeying God and what he's asked us to do. And paradoxically, often God puts us in fearful situations in order to make us trust him, in order to build our faith. And our response needs to be in the midst of the fear to not let it hold us back and instead to hold on to faith and to God and to trust that He and His promises are true and every single one of them is yes and amen. I'm going to close this in prayer and invite our worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. God, I ask that You would help us this morning. Lord, that You would not let us be slaves to fear, that we would not be ruled by the things that scare us, that hold us back. Lord, we know that we can't even have faith or hold on to you unless you help us, unless you aid us. 
Lord, would you? Would you strengthen our hands as they hold tight to your word? Would you strengthen our hearts as we feel them slip? Lord, would we be a people who trust you and who have faith in you no matter what is going on around us? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship our Lord? Amen. Hear this benediction for this month from the end of Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace. Amen.